On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Rosie Walsh is the author of the international bestseller, Ghosted. The book, which is also titled The Man Who Didn't Call, was published in 35 languages and has sold more than 1.5 million copies. Today, we are discussing The Love of My Life, which has already spent several weeks in the top 10 bestseller list in Germany after an early release. And I can only imagine it's going to be that kind of success in the U.S., So Rosie came to writing after a career in factual television. Is that like documentary? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Which took her to some of the remotest places on earth. She wrote her first novel while living in South America, where she met her partner, George, and they now live in Devon, UK, with their two young children. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Rosie. We're so delighted to have you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, and thank you for the invite. So tell us a little bit about The Love of My Life. Oh, so the love of my life is the story of Emma and Leo, who have the kind of marriage that I think we all long for. (laughs) They're a beautiful couple. They get on perfectly. They have a lovely daughter. They live in a sort of ramshackle little house in one of the oldest and most beautiful parts of London. However, when we meet them, things aren't quite so lovely. Emma is waiting to find out whether or not she's uh, in remission from cancer. And Leo, who's an obituary writer, is writing her obituary. And as the novel moves forward, he begins to focus more on Emma's life before he knew her. And in so doing, he discovers a whole load of inconsistencies. And the deeper he digs, the more he uncovers about his wife, until the point at which he realises that he has absolutely no idea who the woman sharing his bed is. Gosh, I'm like, oh, Rosie, they were happy. You you came in and messed them up. <laughs> <laughs> you gave us them and then you messed it up. If it helps, I was going to kill Emma off, but I... <laughs> The first iteration of this novel, Emma was going to die. uh, And the whole book was sort of, you know, the the, the few months leading up to her death while Leo tried to work out who she was. So it could have been a lot worse. This actually makes me feel better, honestly, than this. this, I'll take this version then, definitely. So we we do. So let's talk about Emma. When she first meets Leo, tells him straight away, I'm complicated. She then... um, Leo says later of Emma, yes, she's complicated. She retreats from time to time to a dark place. She has ever worsening problems with hoarding, a compulsive need to check Ruby, that's their daughter, is breathing, and many other things besides. But she's still Emma, brilliant, infuriating Emma. So we'd love to hear more about your development of her, how she came to you, how you made sure to explore and really celebrate these contradictions and complications in her that that we love so much? So I think the problem with writing character is, for me, is that most novels start with a plot idea. And I think that's the case for most, most authors. They tend not to start with a character 
And it's been my experience that you can sometimes get deep into a, a novel, you know, with, with characters and still not really have a strong sense who they are because your writing is being driven by plot to that point. And so I've had experiences with characters before where I've just had to layer and layer and layer and layer. And, you know, over the course of more than a year to, to make the characters distinct and memorable and, 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 you know, and human. Characters are so important to me. And it's something that I get a lot of feedback from readers about. Emma, in that respect, has been an anomaly um, in that I... I just knew her as soon as I came up with the idea. And I actually, I, I experimented for a long time with different names. I can't remember why, but I couldn't, I couldn't not call her Emma is the first thing. I kept coming back to her being Emma and she always looked the same way. I mean, she looks not unlike you, Kate, actually. But, you know, above all, I just knew that she was like, I, in my head, she was small and fierce and funny and outspoken and absolutely vulnerable. In a way which, and I guess, you know, as, as is with so many women, in a way which is really not obvious when you first meet her. So actually with Emma, I haven't had a huge, because I knew her before before mm-hmm. I even wrote her down. And I try with characters not to write too much about their physical description. Firstly, because I think it's a bit corny. And secondly, because I don't think that's necessarily up to me. But actually, Emma was there in my mind's eye from the very beginning. I knew exactly what her hair looked like before and after chemotherapy. I know what her voice sounds like. And and I knew that to the reader and to her husband and to, you know, all of the people around her, she would seem like a fearless, fierce, very funny woman. Mm. Uh, the kind of woman that you, you know, that you're drawn to mm. in a social yeah. setting. But I also knew that she was, of course, deeply, deeply damaged and carrying some really dreadful things. Well, you knew Emma and you knew Emma in love and you gave us that too. Both in Ghosted and The Love of My Life, you show us really what I think is the best kind of love. It starts with instant, undeniable attraction, but through adversity and time builds into something even greater, which seems almost impossible. I want to read a little bit about Emma and Leo, one of my favorite couples. Emma says, I love Leo, not in a part-time or conditional way. It's the real deal, an essential love, as much a part of my biological function as my liver and spleen. I love his Leoisms, the strange snacks he makes for himself, the meticulousness with which he folds clean clothes, the hours he spends trying and failing to play the opening bars of Bruce Hornsby's The Way It Is on my grandmother's old piano. The way he looks at me across his long nose in bed and makes up filthy limericks as if he's reading the shipping forecast. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say he saved my life. When I was pregnant with Ruby, friends warned that parenthood would erode our grand love affair. I understood what they meant. Once our daughter arrived, the chaos and sleep deprivation, the sensation of being on the back foot always and with everything. The loss of adult conversation or intimacy, but I came out of that first year more certain than ever that Leah was the best man I'd ever known. We'd survived a cancer diagnosis, a pregnancy, postnatal depression, and yet there we still were, quietly walking in step. When we weren't passed out with exhaustion, we still mm-hmm. belly laughed in bed before going to sleep. We still kissed each other as if we were falling in love. Oh, <laughs> I mean, so, that's good. <laughs> it's so good. 
So I want to talk about what ultimately becomes the plots of both of your books don't have to have that. You know, there's so much other stuff going on. You could just be like, I love Leo, you know, and kind of leave it at that. Firstly, can I just say, it was actually quite nice to hear that passage. Um, This is the first interview I've done, actually. You guys got in first, which is lovely. And um, so like most authors, by the time I got that ruddy book off my desk, I was absolutely sick of it. And I looked at a single word of it. So thank you. You read that beautifully. It was nice to hear. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, it's not it, it's not a conscious or purposeful decision to to write about love twice in that in that way. You know, sort of the instant connection. Although actually, you know, my only successful relationship, which is with George, the father of my children, was kind of like that. You know, we got together the day we met. But I think. It wasn't. It wasn't conscious, and, and, and actually, I should I should admit straight away that my agent, who always reads early drafts, you know, right from the beginning, even when I've just got a few words, said uh, both with Eddie and Sarah from Ghosted, and now with Emma and Leo from The Love of My Life, can we see more of their love? Can we see mm. more of their love and what makes them work? And with this novel, I don't know why, but I became. For some reason, it became important to me to to add as much detail as possible. I think I was potentially influenced by books I'd read or something, but just just the minutiae of, of, of two people's lives together, which is obviously something I, I, I'm familiar with. I wanted as much of that as possible to be in so in it. So when my agent suggested that I, I laid in more more scenes where we just see them being really happy and lovely together, I really enjoyed them because they were a chance for me to just really shine a light on, on what does happen in people's homes couples who trust each other and love each other and are, and are happy when things are going well what does that look like I, everyone says having kids makes your marriage worse and i wrote an essay that it actually strengthened my marriage and in that same way not that we weren't exhausted not that we weren't freaking out and not sure what we were doing at all but just in that i was sure i had married the right person to be in this with me so i really loved reading that that's nice to hear and actually i was thinking about that line today and you know it it sort of to to a certain extent felt a little dishonest because you know like most people i've found that being a parent has put such a, a huge strain on on our relationship and it's there's a line in the push by Ashley Aldrain where she ah yes I have that we love we love her and that book yeah what a book where she talks about how the affection that Fox used to give her gives to the baby and my partner and I have talked about that many times we're so under resourced now there's so little left of each of us to give while our children are still so young everything we have we give to the children so I don't want (laughs) I want to paint a picture of this sort of blissful time that we're having because it's definitely pushed us to our absolute limits but I think I I guess what we have which not everyone gets is really good communication and a willingness to to work at it because we've certainly had to Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah I don't think anyone gets away with you know this idea of a picture of blissful time but when you're even when you're in that terrible time and you're exhausted and you hate everything to just be like, you know, I'm so glad he's the one in it with me. That's enough at that mm. time, you know, and that's that's all it is. It's not blissed out, wonderful, mm. you know, but you're right. You do end up giving so much to the kids and everything that you used to give to your partner. No, you're right. That's a lovely way of looking at it. It is. Yeah. Just that basic sense of thank God it's you. Yes, exactly. Which is a perfect segue because, you know, to my next question, because usually we do focus on the women as we've talked about Emma, but we do want to talk about Leo and he's an obituary writer, as you said, which at first seemed to me like a curious career choice for, for the character, but then 
I, you come to realize that it works so well in the novel, I think on multiple levels. And I want to read a passage from Leo's point of view about writing. You wrote, people seldom believe me when I tell them our desk is the most cheerful desk on the news floor, that our laughter is often a matter of irritation to our neighbors, but it makes sense if you think about it properly. Current affairs and politics are perennially gloomy spaces to inhabit, whereas we spend our time celebrating extraordinary people. Besides, an obituous currency is life, not death. And my mind is always trained on the qualities of my intended portrait, the colors, the light and dark, the choppy textures. There is a sadness to it, of course, but it's gentle. It's just beautifully written. And, you know, I was unexpected and yes. And so I'm interested. Yeah. in your development of Leo, he is such a critical part of the story, but also his career choice specifically, because like I said, it did seem to me so useful, both in terms of moving the plot, but also just bigger themes that you then had me thinking about an obituary writer. Like they know all these secrets about people and that when they write about people, you find out all these other aspects of their lives or just this idea of how will we be remembered when when we die. Leo was always going to be an obituary writer because the book started with an idea about an obituary writer. So there was no other option. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. So my interest in obituaries came following a conversation in an Italian restaurant. Gosh, not far off 10 years ago now. It was probably maybe nine. My partner and I went for dinner with some sort of new friends. And I can't honestly say the friendship lasted on that dinner it was one of those slightly awkward affairs but we did have a fascinating conversation about obituaries it hadn't occurred to me that obituaries are generally pre-written you know for anyone who's remotely noteworthy anyone no matter what their age or health status will have an obituary pre-written which I I think it's called the stock on both sides of the Atlantic and I started I, I, I wrote a note in my phone straight away along the lines of obituary writer starts researching somebody discovers things that don't add up and that idea went (laughs) through some absolutely ridiculous iterations eventually though in a state of desperation I sat down at my desk because I could not find an idea that was getting past my agent in desperation I sat down and I just wrote down a million one sentence ideas as many as I possibly could and that came out all I needed to do was change a couple of words from my original idea which was obituary writer starts researching his wife's life and discovers mm. a whole bunch of things. So that that that's where it went. And and in the interim, also I was trying to work out what this idea was. And I was also, you know, finishing Ghosted and editing Ghosted and then sort of doing lots of publicity for Ghosted. In the background, I was always reading not just obituaries, but books about obituaries. There's a whole world. Oh wow. There's, there's like a whole it's like a subculture. There's wow. Yeah, there's publications, there's websites, there's an obituary conference, an international one that happens every <laughs> year, and obituary writers yeah. around the world who all know each other. They all fly in. Oh um, wow. It's amazing the little things that stick in your mind and just don't shake. You know the gold is there if you can mine it. So mm-hmm. I want to talk about forgiveness. The men in your novels do things that if the relationship is going to continue, and I'm just trying not to give spoilers, so I'm just positing that as an if, Mm. they would require forgiveness. Eddie ghosts Sarah, which is the basis of Ghosted. Leo betrays Emma by violating her privacy in some major ways, by lying to her. But those are kind of the surface theme of forgiveness, which is important. But there's also a deeper level where by the end of both of these books, the woman needs to forgive herself for something in her past. 
Can you talk about what forgiveness means to you? I think for me personally, self-forgiveness has been one of the greatest challenges of my life, of my adult life, mm. at least since I became conscious of, of my feelings. <laughs> and my I think shame is fire-branded into all of us in some way or another. From, from the earliest age, you know, we're, we're told subliminally, or sometimes, you know, in, in, a, in a more direct way, how we need to live and how we need to behave particularly as women. Mm -hmm. And when we fall short of that ideal, whether it's external or internal criticism, I think self-forgiveness is, is, is almost impossible. But the things that Emma needs to forgive herself for, and you know, like you, I won't go into that, is related to, well, many things, but one of them is relating related to parenthood. And that for me has been my most important work of the last four and a half years since I became a mum. I'm not afraid to say that I'm racked with guilt most of the time that I find my contact with my children frequently unacceptable. And just today, I was thinking about an interaction I had with my son just recently, for which I immediately apologised. It was just a mildly raised voice. But I think the problem with our generation is that most of us have been in therapy at some point, and we're acutely aware of, you know, the damage we can do to other people. And Mm. Um, I find it as a result of having done some self-work, I find it almost impossible to forgive myself for being an imperfect parent. And although Emma's self-forgiveness challenge is different, I think anything involving parenting and that fundamental notion that we alone are responsible, I mean, you know, erroneous notion, of course, yeah. <laughs> that we alone are responsible for our child's future happiness and psychological well-being it makes it near impossible to forgive ourselves. And I would love to say, yeah, I'm making huge progress with that. I am making some, actually. You know, because I realised when my son was about three, I can't live like this forever. I'm getting there. I'm getting yeah. there. And, 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 it, and it's, 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 it's a long, hard journey, I think, particularly for women. You know, yeah. we're meant to be able to do everything now. We're meant, we're meant to have careers and look good and run house and still be good mothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, endless patience, endless knowledge. It's mm. it's all expected of us pretty much instantaneously. And if not, you're an unnatural mother. You d- doesn't you're supposed to know these things. And well, it's, you can parenting now as a, you know, yes. as a sort of as an idea which never existed in, you know, in my parents. Mm. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we're surrounded by messages about how to how how not to mess your child up and you know, this this is right and this is wrong rather than just like this is this is how you do a thing with a child. This is what yes. my mom had. Yeah. You feed them. This is how you change a nappy. You know, these yeah. are all skewed towards how to not mess up your child. And- but this conversation, this is why we're loving so many things now in in popular fiction that are that are dealing with this. Like you mentioned, Ashley Audrain and the push, which we love to talk about. We love the lost daughter and you know, Maggie Gyllenhaal's movie. This is this kind of dialogue, I think, is at least, I don't know, hopefully moving yeah. the the conversation and, and the perception, because it's just it is it is unnatural the expectations on mothers yeah uh, today and Rosie like you said I, I like to think I'm making some progress but all the progress really is is I shorten the time between that I shorten the time that I hate myself right? <laughs> like so I, I'm I'm upset and I'm like you know what I gotta let that go instead of really dwelling on it but that instinct and that yeah. guilt it's it's immediate and it's it doesn't lesson it's consuming but i'm continuing to plug away at it yeah (laughs) sure many of us yes absolutely so speaking of forgiveness we're really into these beautiful passages that you've written but there is one on the idea that we are not really the 
the product of our worst act. And you wrote from Emma's point of view, I invite you to think about an event in your past you'd do anything to erase. You're bound to have one, even if you're young. And if you're good at hiding it, it will be there on the strand lines of your own story. Sand, camouflaged, unremarkable, visible only to those who know what to look for. I was good at hiding mine. And then you say, the things we believe, the things we hide. And it's so true that all of us, as we've been discussing, have these things we don't want to show or parts we want to erase, some shame. But through Emma's story, you know, we see that in revealing that which we've kept hidden, she's finally really seen and loved for all parts of herself. So that's something we sort of obsess over here. There's plenty of stuff, you know, about myself that I've kept hidden for years. And, and you know, and actually, I don't know if it's just old age <laughs> or, you know, just kind of doing the work. But there are far fewer things on my sort of strand lines, to, to quote Emma, that I've kept camouflaged. But it's a really interesting question with regard to this novel, because... Emma is seen by the end, but as the reader, you might have a tricky experience forgiving her. There are some scenes that you are going to read that are very difficult to stomach. You know, when the truth comes out about who Emma is and why she's been hiding, I think many people would understand why she has concealed her mm -hmm. identity and started again. And I think there are there will be some readers who, in spite of reading why she did what she did, will still not be able to accept it or forgive it. And, and and that's not something I tried to solve for readers either. You know, I didn't try and sort of make it okay or find a way of making her lovable or making it all right. Although obviously well, there were a few final twists that sort of turn it upside down, I guess. But yeah, at no point did I think, oh, I need to somehow make this okay and make her likeable and nice because actually people do awful things when they're in an awful place. Well, I, I think there's also readers who will have trouble with with the secrets. There are very, people who are very black and white about honesty. And this question of can you love someone even if you don't know them? You know, this is the issue with Emma and Leo. And can a relationship built on lies succeed? And and to me, I was thinking, well, does it depend on what part's the lie and what part's the truth? Meaning if the love is real, is that all that matters? I mean, I, I think People will come out on different sides on that. Some people are like, well, a lot, you know, a lie's a lie. She wasn't honest or whatever. But I think personally, it's more about what are the parts that you're being honest about. And mm -hmm. I love just generally these questions that came out of that about honesty in relationships. That's something that came about through the layering rather than something that I set out to do. I was aware after reading Ghosted, that it that it raised a lot of moral dilemmas and conversation points. And so when I was writing this, even though it's a completely different story, it felt important to, to have those conversation points and things that people can discuss in book clubs, actually. The best kind of book for me is a book that I want to immediately call somebody and talk about once I've finished reading it. So yeah, I think it was more a layering process than something something intentional from the beginning. So I want to talk about process and your writing process. Both books, there are so many things going on. So many plot points intersect. There's nothing that ends up being random. They're very intricately plotted. Do you outline? Do you just write a ton of drafts? I, I cannot tell you how chaotic and <laughs> the writing of this book was I do not believe any longer in starting a book without really knowing how you're going to get to the ending I have done that before in the past when I've written pseudonymously but with this one my plan was from the very beginning to have it plotted out 
However, <laughs> six months into the writing process, I still had found, had been unable to plot it. I could, there were so many problems and pitfalls and, you know, not just bumps in the road, but great gaping canyons. In the end, I just thought, I'm not going to get this thing written. I'm just going to have to write it and hope for the best because I had done that previously in my in my writing career and sort of roughly got there and, you know, it all turned out in the end. The way I write has changed since then, though, and, you know, for me, it's got to be really plausible. I'm, I'm not interested in one of those sort of convenient twists mm-hmm. <laughs> or some ridiculous storyline that sort of makes A and B somehow linkable. So I had periods of months where I just couldn't get it to work. And I would have these desperate conversations with my writing partner, sometimes with my agent, where <laughs> where I would just, you know, sometimes be quite literally head on desk. Like, I do not know <laughs> how to get past this problem. Yeah. And I can't honestly tell you how I did. Well, actually, I think, to be honest, the, the main thing was time. It took me mm-hmm. more than four years to write. And I think that's yeah. because it was a really tricky, tricky, complex plot with, as yeah. you say, there's clues buried everywhere. And things need to marry up and clues that I'd laid earlier on in the in the narrative just came to nothing later on. So they had to be written out and something else put in. Most of it was time, but I think a lot of it was actually just down to endless discussion with my writing partner, without whom I yeah. would definitely have gone insane. Oh, and at what point in the process do you, because you, as you just said, the big twist is not something outlandish. You didn't see it coming but you very well could have seen it coming. And on second read, you know, like all of the breadcrumbs you've given us. So it's not out of the blue. At what point in the writing process does that come to you? So the twist for Ghosted came before I started writing at my agent's suggestion. Mm. She said, you need to double twist this novel. That was quite a shocker. But And it took several weeks to figure out what that was going to be. But I had it before I started. This one I didn't. And discussed, again, I discussed endless twists with various agents and editors and writing partners and other friends. You know, so many poor writer friends have been sent this this partial manuscript (laughs) with Mm -hmm. some insane email from me saying, help. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I can't do this and and I need a twist. But it was actually Jane Green author. When I was uh, over in the States doing publicity for Ghosted, she invited me to her house for a Facebook interview, which was great fun. And we started talking about my plot and I was saying how stuck I was. And she said, well, how about you do X, Y and Z? I didn't do exactly that, but it sort of it was it was what I needed to start the process of figuring out what the twist was. Oh, I love that. Thank you, Jane Green. The thing thing is, I'm not a twists person. There are people, I have friends who only want to read books with twists. I know, Corinne's one of, well, Corinne reads everything, but but there are some people who are like, what have you guys been reading? Is there anything with a good twist? And, you know, I think the problem is because they're often done very poorly. Like you said, I mean, it is really just like, I get to them and I'm like, really? That was the twist? Yours are so good. It's, it's, and like, it's it's not obvious, but as Corinne's saying, it does, it, it all makes sense when you see it all. But I just love, there's so much, there's so much other richness to your stories. There's the love story, there's the her own personal journey and both of them. And so the twist is just, to me, just this amazing icing on the cake, but there's yeah. also just so much else to love. And they're and it, great twists. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. And your books really defy a genre because as you said, obituary writer uncovers his wife's That could be a traditional mystery thriller and without the heart and the, the soul that, that the love of my life has. So, I mean, this is 
kudos to you on that. And, and I guess it's the time and the layering. When you are stuck head on desk, are there little tricks? Like, do you go for a walk? Do you go for a drive? And really, actually, what I'm asking is, do you trust the process at this point that it will come to you? Or do you ever just think, no, this is, this is it. It's, it's garbage. <laughs> I'm never taking my head off this desk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's such well, a that was a good question. run, but I'm done. <laughs> you know, no. That's such a good question. And may I also say thanks? I think I just need to book in a weekly call with you guys. Totally <laughs> <laughs> confidence. This is just great. But no, back back to head on desk. I can't do this. Um, which I spent a vast portion of the writing of this book doing. No, it's such a good question because the the, the answer which I I was aware of at the time was no. I did not trust in the process. I did not trust that this one would be okay. I've never considered giving up on a book, before, but I very nearly gave up on this um, wow. many times. I'm probably going to get told off by someone for being honest about this, but it's it's true. I really, no. I really did not think it was salvageable, and I had many conversations with author friends of mine who have given up on books because I felt that it should not be this hard. I expected it to be hard. My circumstances when I was writing it were pretty intense. You know, I had two babies. Yeah. I had serious illness, you know, pandemic, an unexpectedly international, internationally <laughs> best-selling novel, you know. Yeah, the weight of that expectation of exactly. your follow-up. And that yeah. in particular was crippling. So I knew that it, these were not ideal writing circumstances, but I also felt in my heart that it should not be this hard. And I, I felt like a lot of people said to me, well, they did say to me, if you get to a point where you just cannot see a way through it, then probably that's because it's not meant to be and you need to listen to your gut. It was actually my two agents who kind of forced me to carry, not forced, but, you know, strongly suggested that I carried on. They loved Emma and Leo because I, I think Emma and Leo came together quite quickly. They loved Emma and Leo. They loved their relationship. And above all, they loved the sort of the elevator pitch for the book. And every time I sent it to a writer friend to take a look at, they came back saying, you can't ditch this. You've got yeah. to keep on. I'm sorry it's so hard, but get over it. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Yeah. Most of us don't get this. So I want to talk about the the title too. Kate and I debate and discuss the idea of the love of one's life probably more than two adult women should. <laughs> and again, we're not going to give anything away here. But there are so many ways to interpret that and and discuss the idea. It's a very common phrase, the love of my life. So we want to hear your thoughts on that in general and also how you came up with the title and why it stuck. Because even if it was you, I'm sure it goes through a whole ringer of people who who have to think this is it. Yeah, the, the, I, I'm afraid my answer to that is, is somewhat disappointing because I, it was called the love of my life from the very beginning. Uh, I don't think I ever really deviated from that. And that for me is quite unusual. It's the first book I've ever named. Other yeah. people, like editors and agents, have named all of the rest of my books. Yeah. <laughs> now, there was, there was extensive discussion between UK and US about the title because Ghosted, or as it was known elsewhere in the world, The Man Who Didn't Call, they're very hooky titles. You know, immediately you want to know what's going on. Whereas The Love of My Life is just a sort of quite nice, gentle statement or, or sentiment. So we did extensively brainstorm sort of more appealing or enticing or even dramatic titles. And we couldn't come up with anything better. 
both my UK and my US publishers just said, oh, forget it, we're, we're going to go with this. It, it's the right title for the book, let's just do it. And we also realised as time went on that the love of my life means many things in this novel. It's not just talking about the various people that, you know, that Emma or Leo could be referring to with that phrase. It's also the, the idea of the love of my life, as in lo- the, the, the attachment that I have to my life, the love I have of my two different lives, if you are Emma, but the huge love that you have for your life if you're Leo, because it's the first time he's actually felt like he belongs somewhere and, and is part of something. So it actually turned out to be a far more clever title than <laughs> any, any- yeah, I. I'm going to need you to look up disappointing in the dictionary because that answer was amazing. There was nothing disappointing about that. In fact, I took it to levels we weren't yeah, even I, thinking with your last point there of that, loving that's exactly what I was thinking her too. life. Oh, gosh. And now I have to make a random segue here because I can't let you leave without asking this. We have a little side interest here. Don't be nervous. In astrology, we, Corinne and I are both lawyers. We are control freaks. We have to find ways to get loose in the grip on life. And, and one of the ways we do that is through astrology and believing that there is, you know, something bigger than us at play. And we've done some dodgy internet research, which could be wrong. And we think you're a Pisces. Mm. Is that correct? Okay. So we usually ask our authors, what's their sign and do they relate to it? So you're a Pisces. If you know, if not, Corinne can tell you all about Pisces. Um, I believe I have Leo rising. Um, yes! I'm sorry, I'm a Leo. I just got really excited. I've just moved to a part of Devon that's like full-on woo-woo. Like, <laughs> I would not believe some of the stuff that I'm doing these days. Oh, I'm I love really it. put off by the notion of astrology. It's just something okay. I don't know much about. I mean, my notion of Pisceans is that they're sort of quite romantic and gentle, but quite self-sufficient yeah that's right Uh, I mean I guess I am all of those things and I probably get confused by you know the Rosie that you would see in public who is fairly confident and sort of quite bouncy and that's your Leo rising Mm. well yeah I guess so yeah and it's how you present to the world I suppose so yeah I mean none of it but none of that's intentional yeah, no, of course not. No, yeah. The last time I've I've spent any great, you know, a great deal of time thinking about a star signs was probably before I'd really taken any kind of a proper look at my life and my my internal life. So I was probably just gauging my externals rather than my internals. Right. I think you'd find some nuggets in there. I see a lot of Pisces just in in the being sensitive in the aware like awareness empathy um, and the richness in your in the characters in your novels I mean it really does speak to a, a Piscean quality my daughter is a Pisces my son is a Pisces both of my kids are Pisces mm-hmm. uh, my brother is a Pisces I have a lot of Pisces in my life I am I've actually a couple of days after you so close I'm, I'm an Aries but on the on the cusp so mm-hmm. what are these other woo-woo things you're doing yes that's what I wanted to do too. I mean because I do so many woo-woo things like the list astrology is just like like the tip of the icebergs so. and also talk about the fact that people if you met us and we weren't having this conversation in this context no one would think I knew anything about astrology or anything woo-woo I mean it's yeah. it's like we said lawyers control freaks this is yeah. not yeah so when yeah. we bust this this side out we just 
it's funny it's isn't it? how you know the number of decisions we make based on our jobs and the kind of clothes we wear mm-hmm. I'm just looking at my side of the zoom I'm looking at myself with my gold hoops and my you know leopard print and my pendant and my hair up and stuff and you know I don't I don't look very woo woo but in the last week I've been talking about quantum woo I've booked myself mm-hmm. in for a gong bath <laughs> oh, oh wow yoga uh, okay that's fantastic that uh, feels like the push too um, and, and signed up for a cacao ceremony so put that in your pipe and smoke it wow you what have is speed. that you yeah. definitely have us be what is that i want it well i don't know i've not been to one before <laughs> oh. I, I, I mean i know that cacao is a sort of ancient thing you know sort of healing yeah. clarifying thing i believe you sit with a bunch of women possibly no it is women and you drink cacao just dissolved in hot water, which is very bitter, but it's, I believe it's, you know, okay. quite clarifying mentally. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm not sure. We're going to look into this, Corinne. Yes, I mean, definitely. I was just thinking more, you know, Reiki and a psychic. These are the things I'm doing. I think I'm, I'm yes, I'm way oh, behind. I'm also, yeah, booked in to see a psychic soon. I say <laughs> for no particular reason other than that, like, I mean, everyone around here seems to be seeing psychics. So I was sure. like, oh, well, like, let's find out. <laughs> See, that's how I am. I'm just like, yeah, I'll try. Why not? Yeah, sure, whatever. Sign me up. For anything. This house that we just bought. Uh, I got it doused. Oh, good, good. Oh, nice. oh, okay. so you see, you're on... yeah. oh yeah. Oh, good. good. That's good. amazing. Very important. Well, well, I was a report, the dousing report out to my partner, and he was absolutely rolling on the floor laughing. Oh, that's good. That's what I'd be normally, but I was like, you know, what the hell? Let's give it a go. It can't hurt. Sure. Exactly. It's... Can't hurt. This is how I feel. And too. is it going to help? Is it, I'm hoping it's going to help with another book. How is, are you writing? <laughs> no, I'm not. And I've decided not, I've, well, I haven't told anyone this yet. Apologies to my agent and editors if this is the first you hear of it, but I've decided not to start writing until September. And for anyone who's listening another time, we're recording this in February. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I, I'm so tired. I'm so tired and overwhelmed. The last five and a half years since I first got pregnant have all but killed me. And yeah. I need I need a break. I need to not be writing. I need to settle into this new home that we've just moved into. I need to spend some time with my children. I need to spend some time with myself. Yeah. And, and I need to not constantly be juggling. And I still will be because I'm the mother of two children. Yeah. Um, and you're yeah. promoting yeah. a book too. So yeah, it's not going to be a quiet stretch of the imagination, but I don't want to throw work into that either. However, I will say that I've had the idea for the next book and I'm actually quite excited about it. Oh, okay. Oh, so that must make you feel better, at least. You kind of know where you're going. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Well, it, I mean, it makes I, me feel better. Yeah, exactly. I've <laughs> got the idea for the next book long before I finish. And this was very recent. And in fact, again, came out of a complete panic about, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I sat oh. down in my panic and wrote loads of ideas and then had this one and was like, yes. Okay, so we're going to get more from you. And we will be patient because it is always worth it. I am telling you, at the end of the love of my life, first of all, I I emailed your publicist, Sarah and Lindsay, and was like, I've 10 pages in and I'm already tearing up and laughing out loud. Can we please get her on the podcast? And I wrote her back two days later at the end of the weekend and said, at the end, I was sobbing, sobbing. Mm -hmm. Uh, like, but you're leaving out how you first read Ghosted in oh, like same thing. less yeah. than 24 hours and was like, I, I 
need to speak to Rosie Walsh. Then she, of course, messages me and she's like, okay, I've done something here, which she doesn't normally do. She does not normally read a book and be like, I'm just going to ask their publicist for the author to be on without asking me. I but wasn't going to without your knowledge, was I? Oh, yes, because she, cause that's how excited she was. She couldn't wait. And so then she, she messaged me. And she was, after you were already booked, she's like, and you need to read her book. And then I read it and I read Ghosted in 24 I know. Hours. And I was like, you need to not only read the new book, but you need to read the old book. Yes. Yeah, so so. Wow. It's good. It's been it, a marathon. Thanks, guys. Best assignment ever. Don't yes. you worry. I was very happy. Yes. Yes. To do okay. so. So uh, we also want to ask you, what else are you loving right now? Books TV, that you've read recently or even classics, favorites, TV shows, movies, anything that is kind of filling that creative well for you we'd love to hear about? Well, the short answer is I don't have time to read or watch anything. Of course. Yes. Um, <laughs> I did just go away for 48 hours before I dropped dead. I took myself off to a hotel for 48 hours. And I divided my time uh, between reading The Push and watching Ozark, a series called. Oh, two of our favorites. So I mean, you've really just. Oh, yeah. we just. You don't need to do anything Ozark. else. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So that's been absolutely fabulous. I recently read a proof of a novel that is coming out in the States soon called Wrong Place, Wrong Time by Gillian mm. McAllister. And oh my God, it's mm. extraordinary. I, <sighs> I think everyone should read it. It's unbelievably clever and is executed with incredible I think it's outstanding it's I've never read anything like it (gasps) oh we love never read anything like it that's that's what I say about your books yeah well go go and look it up it's um I will absolutely outstanding and the the praise it's getting from like some of the most famous writers in the UK is uh, pretty impressive oh that's awesome okay good oh those are great I mean that if that's what you're filling your well with, you're in good shape. So that's right, exciting. it was a pretty good forty-eight hours, I have to say. I still yeah. had pretty much all of it, apart from to get out for a massage and a session in the hot tub. That was it. Oh, nice, fantastic. Yeah. I know it's probably too few and far between, but that that's the kind of stuff that goes a long way to repairing. Mm. Take care of yourself, please. <laughs> <laughs> we need you. Yes, yes, I'm fine. I'm really sorry. Thank you so much for joining us. This was such an absolute pleasure. You are so thoughtful. And your books, I I keep talking about the the soul and the heart of them, but they're also really page turners. I mean, you can't put them down. And so that's such a unique combination. And I'm not kidding. You are a gem. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It's been, I've just heard my son, actually. He's just burst in. So I will, okay. but I cannot thank you enough for your, the lovely things you said. Yeah, hi. Oh, hi. There you go. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Okay, take care. Okay, thank bye-bye. you. Bye. Bye. Come here. Oh, I'm not seeing you for a while. Oh, my big boy. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed the show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at popfictionwomen or on Twitter at pop underscore women. 
For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.